I speak to you in the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. celebrated in a Sunday evening service in St. Paul's Street. The preacher was Donald Coggan, Archbishop of Canterbury. At one time he was a member of the faculty here at Wycliffe. And among the distinguished alumni who came to attend that 100th anniversary was Archdeacon Swanson, who came from Calvary. He preached at the morning service. And referring to the uh, college he said, it's no great achievement to be 100 years old. In eight years from now, I'll be there myself. <laughs> well, Bob, a few of us here today can say the same thing. <laughs> the Wycliffe family is very large. It circles the earth and reaches to heaven. And this chapel holds special memories for all of us. This morning I was speaking to a woman who was married in this chapel. Looking back over the history, think of the weddings and baptisms and, and funerals and ordinations that have taken place in these walls. And the distinguished preachers who have graced the pulpit. I've listened to some of them, and my students week after week when I talk homiletics here. Think of the generations of theological students and faculty who have worshipped God in this place, the very center of the seminary, the spiritual center, the beating heart that gives life to all the rest. One appreciates, I, I appreciate especially, sometimes envy the men and women who actually study here at Whitcliffe. I'm only an honorary alumnus. But I wish I were a student today with the faculty they have here right now. And I recognize the centrality of this chapel in their preparation for the ministry. It's the subject of ministry that I would like to address this afternoon. So I thank Principal Sumner for giving me the privilege. My text that uh, Dr. Hayes read from the Fourth chapter of Paul's second letter to the Corinthians speaks a very special word of God to all of us who were once, are now, or soon will be engaged in the church's ministry. It begins, therefore, therefore, since it is by the mercy of God that we are engaged in this ministry, we do not lose heart. It is by the mercy of God that we're engaged in this ministry. Now, Paul means Christ's ministry of teaching, healing, forgiveness, and reconciliation that he began in the days of his flesh, in which he called apostles, for which he enabled them, and which he sent them out to continue after his death and resurrection. 
by the power of the Holy Spirit, that ministry did continue. They continued it, witnessing as he had commanded in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. By the Spirit's power, that ministry has continued down the centuries and around the world. And by God's mercy, we are engaged in it today. Now that's surely a strange use of the word mercy. Maybe we could understand that Paul had said that we are engaged in the ministry by the calling of God, or the commissioning, or the providence, or the grace, but mercy, mercy suggests that we may not be worthy. We may even be unfit to be in the ministry. And it implies guilt, like that of the cement of the tax collector in our Lord's parable, who prayed, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. What was Paul a sinner? Did he feel guilty? Did he feel that he needed God's mercy? He would emphatically reply, yes. As Saul of Tarsus, he had been the chief of sinners, an enemy of Christ, a persecutor of the church. Maybe we can understand that the, if the early Christians had prayed that God would, would simply strike Saul of Tarsus dead, and God answered them, more marvelous than they expected. He struck Saul dead and made him alive again in Jesus Christ. Turned him from, from a persecutor into an apostle and did so as an act not of justice but of mercy. Well, some of us here may resonate to Paul and, and confess that we also have received our ministry as a gift of God's mercy. Oh, not that we were enemies of Christ, but neither were we Christly enough to represent it. Speaking for myself, I, I'm thankful there was no thing like actor around in my day to examine my motives for wanting to be ordained. I mean, I have received no mandate from God, no divine calling, no salvation experience, no sense of being conscripted against my will. The truth is that I chose the ministry as I would choose any other profession. I'd grown up in the church, I loved the church, I wanted to serve the church, and it was one of the few doors open to me at the time. But you know, for a while I felt guilty about that. Until I heard the sound of divine laughter. And the Lord's voice saying to me, who do you think opened that door? And all other doors along the way. You did not choose me, I chose you and ordained you. Well, that is our mandate for ministry. The only mandate that matters. Well, we're not meant to be saints, except in the Bible sense of being God's people in Christ. I mean, if we were too saintly, we might be insufferable. Proclaiming ourselves instead of Christ, whereas, as Paul says, we are meant to proclaim Jesus Christ as Lord and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. I heard it said of a distinguished preacher that when he entered the pulpit, it was a case of one for God and two for me. Well, we all need to be reminded that we humans are not the gospel. 
We're not the gospel, no matter how gifted and brilliant we are. We are not the gospel. We are jars that contain the gospel. Jars made of clay, ordinary clay. To show us, Paul says, that the extraordinary power of the gospel belongs to God and does not come from us. See, what matters is that having received our ministry as a gift of God's mercy, we try to exercise it honestly and maturely. And as Paul says, commending ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. We envy Paul's resilience of spirit. Twice in this chapter, he says, we do not lose heart. And then he goes on to say, we're afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. Now that's amazing, isn't it? That's amazing. His resilient spirit. You know, I saw that same spirit in the most honored and loyal alumnus of this college, Archdeacon Robert Dan, with whom I was privileged to serve for 10 years. He had a motto on his office wall that I looked at every time I was in there. It read, I steadfastly refuse to gratify the devil by being discouraged. You remember that? I steadfastly refuse to gratify the devil by being discouraged. Well, if you're engaged in Christ's ministry, we can be sure of one thing, the devil will try to discourage us. That's his personal ploy. Get them feeling discouraged. And it's easier today than it was 75 years ago, when Canada was a Christian country. Churches were filled. And whole families worshipped to God together on Sunday mornings. I have here a Sunday leaflet of St. Paul's Church, Bloor Street, that was given to me by a friend who lives in the same residence where my wife and I now live, seniors home. This is the Sunday in 1932 when she was baptized by Cameron Cody. Now I'm impressed what a little what a little piece of paper it is here. <laughs> and I can scarcely read the print. They must have wonderful eyesight in those years. Or else they knew how to save money. I'm impressed by the notice in it which says that all seats, 3,000 of them, are reserved until the service begins. After that, the visitor might be seated. And also by Canon Cody's morning and evening sermon subjects, he's guaranteed to last an hour. He was known as Canon Regular Lunch Cody. <laughs> in the morning, he preached on the moral and religious challenge of Russia. In the evening, he preached on St. Philip, the matter-of-fact man. Well, in this, these days of, of talking political heads on television, who cares what a preacher has to say about Russia? Or about St. Philip, for that matter. I mean, in this secular, post-Christian age, I mean, what, what family lifestyle leaves room for the worship of any God? 
except the God of this world, who, as Paul says, has blinded the minds of unbelievers to prevent them from seeing the light of the glory of the gospel of Christ. So, what was Paul's secret? Why, why, why didn't he lose heart? When you consider all he went through, all that he suffered, all the hardships he endured for the sake of the gospel. I mean, what kept his spirits up, his resilience of spirit? And what does the same for us? Well, in Paul's case, two things. First of all, a sense of inward daily renewal, which derived from his hope of eternity and enabled him to say, though our outer nature is wasting away, our inner nature is being renewed day by day. For this slight momentary affliction, which is which working for us in eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. For we look not at the things that are seen, but the things that are not seen. Because the things that are seen are temporary, but the things that are not seen are eternal. See, in effect, Paul is telling us not to be seduced by statistics. He's telling us not to fix our eyes on the visible results of our ministry, the things that can be seen and that pass away like those huge congregations in our churches. Just to fix our eyes on eternal realities, the things that cannot be seen in our churches, in the lives of people, in our society, the eternal realities that do not pass, pass away. Look for the kingdom of God not over against the kingdoms of this world, but within and alongside the kingdoms of this world. The German theologian and preacher Helmut Tillich stressed that truth during the Second World War. One Sunday morning after an air raid, he continued a series on the Lord's Prayer later published into a book. And coming to the, the petition, Thy kingdom come, he said, in, with, and under the world's anguish and distress, in, with, and under the hail of bombs and mass murders, God is building his kingdom. But the supreme fact, the supreme fact of history that kept Paul's spirits up and kept him resilient, the supreme fact in 2 Corinthians 4 is God's mighty act in raising Jesus Christ from the dead. And Paul's conviction that the resurrection not only happened to Jesus on Easter day, it happens to God's people in Christ here and now. It happens to the church, which is the body of Christ. Indeed, the story of the church is a story of many resurrections. Time and again in history, when everything in its life and the life of the world has pointed to its approaching death, a strange power of inward renewal has begun to operate releasing the forces of life and hope. In his book, The End of Christendom, Malcolm Weatherwigs pointed to a dramatic example of that truth when he said that one of the amazing facts of our time is the renewal of the Christian faith in its purest possible form in areas where it has been most severely persecuted. That is the truth. Out of life, out of death comes life. Therefore, since it is by God's mercy that we are engaged in this ministry, we do not lose heart.
Let us pray. Now unto him who is able to keep us from falling, and to present us faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy, to the only wise God our Savior, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, now and evermore.